Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Now, before we get started today, I want to talk about a cool podcast that I've been listening to lately that I thought that you actually might be interested in, too. It's a show called Famous Lost Words, and it's called that because it's focused on archival interviews with people like Mick Jagger, Steve Perry from Journey, Sting, J-Lo, Meat Loaf, The Kinks, you name it. There's, it's endless. The show is hosted by former Much Music VJ and songwriter Christopher Ward, who I used to watch on Much pretty much daily as a kid, and also by a guy named Tom Jokic, who I became friends with recently after we were introduced by a mutual buddy because of the work that he does in the music industry as a producer and an interviewer. It's really cool to hear all these old archived interviews with Jokic and Ward, and they have really entertaining conversations. Anyway, really great podcast. I don't listen to a lot of other shows, but I do listen to this one, and I highly recommend it. It's called Famous Lost Words, easily found wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so if you're a weekly listener, and if you're not, you should be, you'll note that uh, you'll note that there's been a bit of a continuing trend that's been taking shape over the past three episodes. In episode 168, I talked about the conspiracy theories that arose from the death of Kurt Cobain, claiming that he did not commit suicide, but rather that he was murdered. And then, in episode 169, I was joined by the lovely Erica M., primarily because she conducted one of Cobain's last interviews before his death. Because our conversation ran long, it was broken down into two parts, giving rise to last week's episode, number 170. And now this week, I figured I would take you full circle and go back to have a look at some of the other more popular rock and roll conspiracy theories out there. The four that I've selected to examine today range from obvious silliness through to a deeper level of complexity. Beginning with David Bowie's predicting the rise of Kanye West, then the Phil Collins in the air tonight drowning conspiracy theory, followed by Supertramp foreshadowing the September 11 terrorist attacks through clues on their Breakfast in America album cover, and then ending with the eternal conspiratorial question. Is Elvis really dead? All right, let's start with David Bowie and Kanye West. Kanye West calls himself Jesus and started doing that a number of years ago, but there are some music conspiracy theorists out there who claim that his destiny to become a superstar was predetermined long before the 2000s. They actually claim, in fact, that this predetermination occurred five years before he was even born, in June of 1972, the beginning of a timeline demonstrating how David Bowie and Kanye West are unequivocally linked to one another in some very peculiar ways. This is because 1972 was the year that David Bowie released his Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust record on June 6, 1972. This was Bowie's fifth record and arguably the one that cemented his legacy as a superstar via otherworldly alter ego Ziggy Stardust. The series of events unfolds in this way. David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust record is released on June 6, 1972. On the cover is an image of Bowie 
standing in front of a building on a dark street, presumably in London. Hanging directly over his head is a large illuminated shop sign that very clearly reads K West. Seems very odd that the sign would have been featured so prominently in the image taken by Brian Ward, the photographer responsible for that initial black and white photo. Color would be added in later by hand. Ward's studio was also on Hedden Street, which was the site of the photo, 23 Hedden Street. The sign, which belonged to a furrier company, was removed in the 80s by an enthusiastic fan, to which Bowie commented in Rolling Stone magazine shortly after that it was a shame, because people seemed so fascinated by what it could represent and the mystical overtones that fans attached to it that maybe it was some sort of secret code for the word quest. The theory goes on to delve a bit further into the Ziggy Stardust record, with an examination of the meaning behind the record's first track, a song called Five Years. The song's lyrics prophesize the world ending in five years' time unless a star man is able to appear and rescue humanity from itself. And sure enough, five years, in two days. Later, on June 8th, 1977, Kanye Omari West is born. The star man that David Bowie allegedly alluded to on the album arrives. Two years after the Ziggy Stardust record was released, Bowie described how his Ziggy alter ego would leave this earth. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he said, as soon as Ziggy dies on stage, the infinites take his elements and make themselves visible. This, of course, was seen as prophetic by the conspiracy theorists upon David Bowie's own death on January 10, 2016, after which West was one of the very first artists to commemorate him, tweeting within an hour of the official Facebook announcement of Bowie's passing. Then everybody piles on with additional speculation on sites like Reddit, asserting that the name of Bowie's final album, Black Star, is affirmation that Kanye West is Bowie's anointed musical successor. Aside from the obvious connotation of West quite literally being a black star, conspiracy theory types also surmised that the lyrics from the album's first song, entitled Black Star, revealed further proof. They read, Something happened on the day he died. Spirit rose a meter and stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried, I'm a black star. I'm a black star. And if you thought that wasn't enough, there's more. The third song on the Black Star record, which Bowie recorded during his secret 18-month battle with cancer, is called Lazarus a reference to the biblical character of the same name, who in the Bible becomes ill, dies, is placed in a tomb, and then shortly after comes back from the dead through the power of religion. And of course, theorists are quick to note that the third song on West's 2013 Yeezus album is called, without any irony whatsoever, I Am a God. And... Three days before Bowie's death in January 2016, Sia released a new song called Reaper, 
the co-writer and co-producer of this new song, you ask? Why, it was none other than David Bowie incarnate, Kanye West. Sorry, that last sentence made me gag a little bit. Okay, next up. The conspiracy theory surrounding Phil Collins' mega-hit In the Air Tonight. This one is a lot less silly, and also flatly debunked by Phil Collins himself in recent years. The myth itself is rooted in a common theme, that the lyrics of the song tell a grim real-life illicit story, but with different variations. One is that Collins watched a man who had once attacked his wife drown, and did nothing to try to save him. Another version was that Collins wrote the song about someone who watched another person drown. A more detailed and peculiar version holds that when Collins was a young boy, he watched a man drowning someone, but was too far away to help. He later hired a private investigator to find the man, sent him a free front row seat ticket to one of his concerts, and performed the song, well, shining a spotlight on the man the whole time, and later accusing the man of the crime in plain language in front of the audience at the show. All of these permutations are untrue. Collins recently revealed that his divorce at the time and his state of mind that he was in as a result of that divorce were the primary influences of the song. One day in the studio, Collins was noodling with a chord progression that he liked, and he started to improvise lyrics and a melody to match the chord progression, and just turned on the mic and captured the spontaneity of the session. Collins would say later that it frightened him that these words would come out during a simple improvisation, but that he was quite proud of the fact that 99.9% of those lyrics were sung completely spontaneously. Incidentally, Collins' divorce was a contributing factor from his hiatus from Genesis in early 1979 until the band got back together later that year to record the album Duke. Originally, Collins wanted to have In the Air Tonight appear on Duke, but the rest of the band rejected it, a decision that they would come to thoroughly regret later. Two quick fun facts about the drums from the song In the Air Tonight. First, that massive drum sound they got was the result of one of those happy accidents that often occur in the studio and lead to great and unexpected things. Collins was playing drums on Peter Gabriel's third solo record, and while they were recording a song called Intruder, Gabriel was in the studio talking with engineer Hugh Padgham, who was in the control room, and they were talking through what's called the talkback activated when the engineer presses a button from the control room and opens a circuit, allowing for a conversation between the two rooms through the mixing board. Otherwise, the two rooms are completely sonically isolated. This circuit has a compressor on it to compensate for sound level differences, so you can be close to the talkback microphone or far away and still be heard. This compression minimizes the differences between loud and quiet sounds, so at some point, Collins started playing the drums while the talkback was activated. Padgham, the engineer, noticed the booming drum sound they got when this happened, and overnight, they rewired the board so that the talkback could actually be recorded and utilized as a recording. 
when Pageant was brought in to work on the Phil Collins demos that would eventually become In the Air tonight, they recreated the drum sound they got using that compressed talkback microphone and got that big drum sound that we hear, which pretty much set the stage for drum sounds all the way through the 80s. In the Air Tonight, fun fact number two. The original version of the song that was initially released as a single has a drum track that can be heard right from the beginning of the song, right up to that big signature drum fill coming in that we all know. The drum track wasn't there until the head of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan, came into the studio and requested that they actually put it in. It turns out Erdogan was listening to the final mixes of the song, the one where the drums come in at the end that we're familiar with. Right before the drums came in, Erdogan says to Collins, where's the downbeat? Where are the drums in this song? Collins says, yeah, they're coming in in a minute. Erdogan's response apparently was, well, you know that, and I know that, but the kids don't know that. So let's bring the drums in earlier. So in that initial pressing, there are drums all the way through the mix. They would be taken out later, of course. All right, next conspiracy theory. Supertramp trying to warn us about 9-11 with their 1979 Breakfast in America album cover. Now, I don't believe this for a minute. I think I'm more interested in the peculiarities of this particular musical conspiracy theory and the fact that someone actually took the time that they did to put this line of thinking together. It's just, uh, it's truly bizarre. So according to these theorists, if you study the image of the Supertramp Breakfast in America album cover, there are certain clues to be found. If you happen to be sitting in front of a computer while you're listening to this, Google the image and play along. So the album features a depiction of the New York City skyline as seen from an airplane. The buildings are made to look like items that might be on a table in a diner. And instead of the Statue of Liberty, there's a waitress in the foreground holding a glass of orange juice instead of a torch. The orange juice is positioned directly in front of the Twin Towers and just happens to be the same color as fire. Now, here's the kicker. When you look at a reverse image of the cover or hold the record in front of a mirror, the U and the P in Supertramp look like a 9 and an 11. Further, the album title, Breakfast in America, is thought to be an announcement of when the attacks would be occurring, the first plane striking One World Trade Center at 8.45 a.m., breakfast time. So there's that. And if you look at the back cover image, in the lower right corner, a plane is seen flying towards the Twin Towers. Theorists speculate that the Breakfast in America album cover is a bit of what's called predictive programming, a notion popular among conspiracy types that embed messages into pop culture in order to psychologically prepare the general population for certain events, kind of like the movies E.T. or Independence Day. Breakfast in America was believed by many conspiracy theorists to be subliminal mental preparation that citizens would need two decades in advance to accept the tragedy of 911, apparently. Now, during Supertramp's early years, 1969 through 1972, they were supported financially by a Dutch millionaire named Stanley 
August Misagius. It's been pointed out that Misagius appears to be wearing a Masonic pendant in a photograph taken of him, which is a common symbol used by the Freemasons, an organization who, among many other things, have been regularly accused of trying to bring about the New World Order. Misagius is thought by many to be the White Knight who is behind all of the secret subliminal messaging and predictive programming. Once you go down this rabbit hole, things get really wild. People believe that a serious attempt was made to warn Americans 22 years before September 11, 2001, and that it was orchestrated by a powerful European Masonic group, and that the number 22 is a powerful Masonic number. In numerology, 22 is often called the Master Builder, or spiritual master in form. There are theories about gematic coding providing clues to the terrorist attacks that the Freemasons and the Illuminati were at the heart of the conspiracy, and so much more. Crazy, crazy stuff. Some of these people even allude to Supertramp's previous record, Crime of the Century, as being an associated reference to the 9-11 attacks. Of course, this is fueled by the album's dedication, which reads, To Sam, a nickname for Stanley August Misagius. All right, we're going to finish with the granddaddy of rock and roll conspiracies now, that age-old question. Is Elvis really dead? The announcement of Elvis Presley's death on August 16th, 1977, stunned and devastated millions of people worldwide. It was only a few days following his funeral that speculation grew among small skeptic populations that Elvis may not have died at all. Even though medical doctors and a coroner provided confirmation of Presley's death at age 42, some people would come to insist that the singer simply went into hiding and that his death was faked so that he could do so. There have been countless sightings over the last 40 years issued by people from all around North America, who are convinced that they've seen Elvis Presley. There's even an organization called the Elvis Sighting Society that records and tracks these sightings. Some people even go as far as to say that Elvis appeared as an extra in the movie Home Alone. These people actually have a name. They're called the Alivers. According to the Alivers, the evidence that Elvis Presley is still alive is insurmountable, and the sightings occur with regularity. Alivers will immediately point to a consideration that I myself have wondered about in the past, actually, which is the apparent misspelling of Presley's middle name on his Graceland tombstone, which reads Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, instead of A-R-O-N, apparently the correct spelling. The theory floated around with respect to this point is that Presley was not completely comfortable seeing his full real name on a tombstone, and he requested that his middle name be altered somewhat to alleviate the anxiety that this caused. There's also the point of the coroner's finding of cardiac arrhythmia, which can't be determined in a dead body, and the rumors of the supposed wax figure serving as a body double in place of Presley's actual body in his casket. 
Several people claimed they witnessed the body in the casket sweating or showing evidence of condensation, proof that the figure was made of wax. There's also a rumor that no one ever cashed out his life insurance policy. And apparently, the results from Presley's autopsy were placed under a 50-year seal, making them publicly inaccessible for that duration of time. Alivers present a few theories for the alleged staging of Presley's death. They vary, with the simplest one being that Presley was just in poor health and had become disenchanted with fame. So he faked his own death to lead a simpler life. One of the most tantalizing conspiracy theories regarding Presley's death is that it was done to escape the mafia. An author named Gail Brewer Giorgio wrote a book called Is Elvis Alive? And after sifting through thousands of FBI documents, she maintains that Presley was an American hero who had no choice but to enter into witness protection and fake his own death. According to her, the FBI employed Presley as an undercover agent in 1976 to help infiltrate a criminal organization called The Fraternity, a notorious racketeering group in the U.S. The story goes that Presley volunteered, spurred by his love for America and admiration of the FBI. Presley was apparently approached by the FBI as a result of a member of the fraternity being involved with Presley over the sale of an airplane of his. Eventually, Presley's anonymity as an FBI informer was compromised, and he was put into the witness protection program according to the intelligence that Brewer Giorgio obtained from FBI documents and interviews. The FBI did not comment immediately on the claims Brewer Giorgio makes in her book, and there's no mention of Presley being directly involved with the FBI in the 760-plus files that the agency has made public regarding Presley, which resulted from a folder being created in his name based on his being the target of repeated extortion attempts that the FBI was investigating. Those released documents summarize the extortion cases and reference Presley's admiration and respect for the FBI. During a 1971 tour he took for the FBI's headquarters, the musician offered his, quote, services in any way, according to an FBI memo. There's also mention of Presley's plane and a business arrangement involving the aircraft in the memos. One last claim the Alivers pose is that immediately following the death of Elvis Presley, a man bought a plane ticket to Buenos Aires under the name John Burroughs, an alias that Elvis Presley commonly used for hotel reservations. My take on Elvis faking his death and all of this conspiracy stuff? I think it's pretty far-fetched. Interesting to consider, maybe. The opportunity for critical thinking is great, but I mostly just enjoy this stuff for what it is. Entertainment. Pure and simple. Hey, we all love a good mystery, don't we? Alright, I hope you enjoyed this episode. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.